Hey, we're going on in this series of uh, dangerous generosity and the last few weeks focusing on the concept of intellectual generosity. And today, the trait of that intellectual generosity that I want to focus on is this idea of teachability or becoming a lifelong learner. That's really what disciple means. If you're a disciple of Christ, you're a lifelong learner. You're an apprentice of Jesus. And throughout Christian history, that value of teachability, that idea of being a lifelong learner, uh, has been touted all throughout Christian history, really throughout human history, when things were going well. Lifelong learning or teachability has been deeply valued. For instance, in the Rule of St. Benedict, how many of you are familiar with or have read the Rule of St. Benedict? So the Benedictine order of the Catholic Church, St. Benedict started that, and he wrote a rule. And it's actually a fairly uh, deep book. And the rule of St. Benedict simply outlines the way the people of his Benedictine community were to live with each other. It's a rule. Many of us practice now the idea of a life rule. So we have a rule of life that we we usually have four or five bullet points, and these are... These are our rigors. These are the things that we're going to practice, our rule of life. Well, this is a book called The Rule of St. Benedict. And in The Rule of St. Benedict, Benedict shows a remarkable value, a remarkable respect for the idea of teachability and persuasion, its first cousin. Listen to what he says in his rule. This is written in the 6th century, so just 13, 14, 15 generations after Jesus, depending on how you count the generations, not that long after Christ. The rule of St. Benedict, and I'm reading right from the rule. It says this, If any pilgrim monk come from distant parts with wish as a guest to dwell in the monastery and will be content with the customs which he finds in the place and and does not uh, perchance by his lavishness disturb the monastery but is simply content with what he finds, he shall be received for as long a time as he desires." If indeed he find fault with anything or expose it reasonably and with the humility of charity, the abbot shall discuss it prudently, lest perchance God has sent him for this very thing. So you see Benedict and the authorities in the community even practicing teachability. And then I love this. This is my favorite part of the whole rule of, uh, of Benedict. But if he have been found gossipy or contemptuous, resistant to authority in the time of his sojourn as guest. Not only ought he not be joined to the body of the monastery, but also it shall be said to him honestly that he must depart. And then listen, this last sentence is really revealing. If he does not go, assumedly, even after he's been instructed to depart, let two stout monks take him outside and in the name of God, explain the matter to him more fully. Don't you love that? Let two stout monks take the brother outside and explain the matter to him more fully fully, help them to be teachable. Who knew that the original Benedictine community had teachability enforcers? I mean, I could just see these big guys like bouncers. That's how much Benedict 
respected teachability. Centuries later, the great futuristic author Huxley said this. He said, experience teaches only the teachable. He valued teachability. And he knew that the people of his time and future times would value teachability. Experience doesn't teach everybody. Experience only teaches the teachable. Perhaps that's why today even corporations and businesses are valuing teachability so highly. Using some of them, something they call the teachability index. What's your teachability index? When they try to decide who it is they should hire and or promote. And that teachability index is very generally put, measured this way. Number one, discerning a person's willingness to learn. That's part of your teachability index. And secondly, a person's willingness to change in response to what he or she has learned. Even corporations are using that now. So highly valued, so highly treasured is the idea of becoming a learner in pursuit of intellectual generosity. It's what one popular life coach has called the ability to move from what he calls from arrogance to openness. That's the teachability index, the teachability adaptability. I define for our purposes today teachability this way, this lifelong learning attribute, as the willingness to be persuaded by a better argument. The willingness to be persuaded by a better argument. That's teachability. That's the practice of being a disciple, of being a lifelong learner. And so we're always needing to ask ourselves the question, wait a minute, have I decided everything to the point that I've quit listening? Or am I willing to continue to be persuaded by a better argument? It's not the absence or a, uh, a rejection of reason or logic. It's the employment of it. But while we're employing reasonable thought and convictions with what we believe, are we open to being persuaded by a better argument? And there's that back and forth. That's teachability. It's a major expression of intellectual generosity, which is our pursuit in this series on dangerous generosity. So it's no surprise, really, that this idea of teachability, the willingness to be persuaded by a better argument, is found throughout Scripture. Now, there are so many examples of it in Scripture that we would never have time to look at them all. In fact, you're going to find this in some way, measured in some way, practiced in some way, just about every hero of the Bible. We're just going to look at two, and actually rather briefly. The first is Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Teachability, the willingness, lifelong learning, the willingness to be persuaded by a better argument. Nicodemus in John chapter 3, do you know the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Nicodemus is a ruler of Israel. He's one of the primary teachers, if not the primary teacher of the, uh, of, of the Israelites in the time of Jesus. And he comes to Jesus by night and asks him a question. And from that discussion, we get perhaps the most well-known biblical text in the whole scripture, uh, the announcement that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in that son would not perish but have eternal life. That's the context of that is this discussion that Nicodemus has. And Nicodemus is teachable. He's open to reason. 
If you look at John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says this, and listen to him being open to reason. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. These are folks that maybe on their worst days, in their worst expressions, had everything figured out to the point of brains being thoroughly locked. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, it's just him and Jesus, as far as we know, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. So obviously he's been listening and thinking and has at least gotten that far. Jesus has come from God. Just don't know who he is, what he is, what he's about fully. There's no question he's come from God. He's been thinking about that. For no one, he says, to pick up on the quote, could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus has been reasoning. He's been watching. He's been listening. And he's become convinced that something special is going on here. He's been open to reason. And Nicodemus displays a genuine hunger for understanding because he's teachable. In verse 3, Jesus replies, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Which is a provocative statement. And Jesus answers a question Nicodemus isn't asking outright, but it's really the real question that Jesus perceived it. And then Nicodemus asks another question that reveals his genuine hunger for understanding. Remember, this is a pretty high-powered teacher, and he says, scratching his head, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. It borders on the ridiculous, the question, but still he asks it. Why does he ask it? Because he really wants to know the answer. His openness is revealed in him being open to reason. His teachability is revealed in his being open to reason and his genuine hunger for understanding, which is shown there by the genuine question that he asks. And then Jesus answers, O Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can enter this kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Jesus is saying there, it's the essence of the gospel of Christ. Look, Nicodemus, my dear brother, people are born once of the water. Your mother's water breaks and you're born. But there's this other birth that happens subsequent to that. That's a spiritual birth. And he implies in this conversation that, you know the, uh, the emptiness you feel after that first birth? And the things you see as you're growing up and going through school and going through work and your career and meeting people, the brokenness you see in the world, the questions you ask when you're laying alone in your bed and your head hits the pillow and you start thinking and there's no distraction to keep you from having to think and you're wondering, why so much hurt? Why so much pain? Really, I'm going to take my last breath one day? And at very best, I have a generation and a half of a handful of people that are going to know who I was before I'm some forgotten black and white picture on an oval, in an oval frame hanging on some wall someplace. Somebody bought it at a garage sale because it looked cool, and that's all that's left of my life. Really? Jesus is answering this question that we all ask. He's saying there's a birth that's a second birth that gives your life purpose. It fills all the voids, every emptiness, and launches you into what's real life. That's why I say to you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. 
You want to experience this kingdom of God, this, this series of choices that decide to yield to this other world that is rumored to be out there for the taking? You've got to be born again. Born of water first. And then there's this spiritual thing that happens when we come to God and say, oh, I'm in. Before I understand that I'm in, take me, please. Cause me to be born again. Forgive me. Launch me anew in your purpose. I follow you from now on. That's that second birth that Nicodemus is told about because he has this genuine hunger for understanding. And I love the fact that even though Nicodemus was a person who had already achieved just about everything you could achieve in his world, he was at the top of his game. He was the dude. And Jesus recognizes it. Nicodemus says, how can someone be born again? They can't jump back into their mother's room. And Jesus answered very truly, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it's coming from or know where it's going, yet you still believe in it. So it is with the Spirit of God. And Nicodemus says, but how can this be? And Jesus even affirms Nicodemus' position, his stature. He says, Nicodemus, you're Israel's teacher. You're the teacher of teachers here. Right? I don't imagine Nicodemus answered that. And do you not understand these things? Here's a man who, he's so teachable that even when he's recognized as the teacher of an entire people, he still comes hungry to learn from a carpenter. An itinerant preacher. Jesus goes on, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, reference to Jesus, must be lifted up, reference to the cross, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Believes what? Believes that he was God with us on the cross for us. Launching us into this magnificent adventure of a life. And then that famous text, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in that son shall not perish, but have eternal life. And in that context, Jesus also says, for he didn't send the son into the world to condemn the world, or to bust the world's chops, or to step on the world's head, or to beat it when it's down. Doesn't need to. He's got the evangelical church to do that. <laughs> so, but Jesus came into the world to love the world, and certainly not help it escape truth, because truth is truth. But to love us through the truth, while we pursue truth, while we find truth. Don't you love it? Jesus walks slower so that he can walk with us sometimes in life. And we find all that out because Nicodemus was a learner. I'm taking way too much time here because I want to move to my second example. Nicodemus was teachable, but my favorite example is the example or an example we find in our primary gospel text for this series on Dangerous generosity, this series on generosity being and generosity of intelligence, of intellectual 
generosity. It's from the Gospel of Luke. And the example is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was teachable. Now put yourself in Mary's place. Mary is a young girl, a teenager. She has kept herself a virgin, so as is the Christian teaching, she hasn't been intimate with a, a man until before marriage. That's still the Christian teaching, by the way. Hang in there. I know it's not easy. Every message you get everywhere from every angle says the opposite. That's still what Scripture teaches, and it's still what we're committed to. So Mary's done that, and she's going to sleep one night, and she falls asleep, and in the middle of her night's sleep, she's awakened because there's a sense of a presence of somebody there by her bed. Now, if, if in the middle of the night, I suddenly woke up thinking there's somebody there by my bed, I would open up and I would see a person standing by my bed looking over me, and if it were a real human being, I would jump under the bed, afraid. Maybe I'd reach up and shake Brenda's shoulder. Hey, honey, there's somebody in the house. Go see. <laughs> Threatening your children. They'd put the little fire in the mother, you know. This was not just a regular human being. It wasn't her father. It wasn't her brother. It wasn't her uncle. It wasn't her fiancé, Joseph. It was an angel, dressed like angels dress. I don't know what they actually look like. Pretty severe. And Mary shows in this encounter her enormous teachability. And what I want you to capture here is the progression of teachability, the step-by-step openness. This isn't a wholesale, I'm jumping at the bait and swallowing the whole hook without thinking, without caution, without doubting, without wondering, without researching. Step by step by step, you see Mary as teachable, willing to hear and possibly be persuaded by a better argument in the discussion with this angel. Let's start from the beginning because it says in in Luke chapter 1, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And then one of the great understatements of Scripture. Mary was greatly troubled. (laughs) And she wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And Mary's teachability starts to come out. Because in verse 34 especially, she asks this question. Questions are always a good sign of teachability. He says to her in verse 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. So that it's, I mean, stack this up on the previous facts. Mary first here, she's, going, she's with child. She's going to have a baby, or she's going to be with child and have a baby. That's enough information for a virgin to try to deal with. And then this angel says, not only are you going to have a baby, you're going to have a king baby. This is going to be Downton Abbey, and you're the dowager. You're going to be the queen's mother, or the king's mother. You've got it made, Mary. All this stuff should be circling. 
And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And then you have Mary's pure question. How can this be? Uh, question. <laughs> How can this be since I'm a virgin? I've never been with man. Trust me, she says. Trust me. I would remember that. Teachability. It's not get out of here. It's not, Dad, there's someone in my room. The willingness to be persuaded by a better argument. And it's shown by the asking of a simple and obvious question. And then she receives her explanation. The Holy Spirit will come on you, beginning in verse 35. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God, not Son of Joseph. And then he gives her information she can test. And by testing this information, she might be able to gain some insight into the validity of the things she couldn't necessarily test. Do you see how that works? And God's like that too. Give you this crazy challenge and then a little something you can test because he appreciates how insane his callings sometimes seem to us. And he says in verse 36, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. So it's not just, an, it's not a normal pregnancy. It's an astounding pregnancy. And she who is said to be unable to conceive, in fact, is already in her sixth month. For no word, God will ever fail. So Mary asks a question. She receives an explanation. And then she submits in general. She takes a step of submission, of being convinced. But it's not a wholesale, okay, I'm in, I buy it, got it, done, gonna happen. It's sort of like Mary saying, so far so good, I'm gonna stay in the conversation. And she says, I am the Lord's servant, in verse 38, may your word to me be fulfilled. Not, I believe it. It's Mary saying, let it be, as you have said. And then at this point, she's still unclear, not yet convinced, but she's in this progression of teachability because that's what she is. She's teachable, if nothing else. And she tests the facts of the prophecy she's heard, showing that she's still open, but not foolishly so, by visiting Elizabeth. At that time, Mary got ready, verse 39, and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And while Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she explained, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. Who told you I was going to be pregnant? Mary says to Elizabeth, at least in her mind. But why am I so favored, Elizabeth goes on, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Not only... Who told you I was going to be pregnant? Who told you about this king thing with this baby? And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, Elizabeth said, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And at least at that point, Mary has confirmed that what the angel told me about you being pregnant in your old age is actually true. And you've got all this other information I thought only I had from my dream and my visit. Maybe my openness has paid off. Maybe <laughs> I'm going to move from willing to be persuaded to persuaded. 
Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her, says Elizabeth, which is exactly what Mary needed to hear. And then you have one of those beautiful portions of scripture and picture in your mind this tender young mother-to-be singing, breaking out in song. And she is fully convinced now. And she says, she sings, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is Mary. From willing to be convinced to convinced. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich, the arrogant rich at least, away empty. And he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So Mary in this song not only says, I buy it, I am now convinced, but she actually brings these promises full circle from the promise to Abraham being fulfilled in her. She had kept herself a virgin for her betrothed and could not therefore conceive of how the angel's prophecy could possibly be true. Yet Mary remained open to the possibility that God had something special in store for her and went to Elizabeth to test things out, cautious but open. She was a learner. She was teachable. She was willing to be persuaded by a better argument. And because she was willing to be persuaded by a better argument, all of humanity has hope for a better life. Do you get that? Lifetime learners, teachable. That's an intellectual generosity the church needs to recapture and redeploy. But as we've been reminding you each week, we're closing with this now, this intellectual generosity, this teachability is dangerous because it's costly. It's not for the weak of heart, the faint of faith. It's costly. And here are some ways that it's potentially costly. First, it might cost you a friendship or two, this intellectual generosity, this teachability. And here's why. Our most passionate arguments are often tied to the people and the faces who introduced us to them. So sometimes it feels like to be open to a different way of seeing things or different beliefs about things, certainly about doctrinal matters, it almost feels like disloyalty to the great teachers we've had in our lives that we love very much that taught us those things. Does that make sense? For instance, in seminary, man, I had some teachers I really loved. There are pictures of them on my desk from 1980. Still pictures of them on my desk. That picture is there because I said when I graduated uh, from seminary, I owe these professors a debt forever. Any ministry I do from now on, I should never forget them and what they gave to me. And, and it was rich, and I loved them, and I still love them. 
But I had a perspective about, for instance, the definition of what the kingdom of God was when I graduated from seminary that's different from my understanding of kingdom of God now. Then I thought it was completely an eschatological or end times kind of thing. So when every time we talked about the kingdom of God, you were talking about the return of Christ, and that's the only element there was, the only uh, angle there was from kingdom of God. Now I understand that differently. And I think, well, kingdom of God is now. We can step into it and out of it by choices we make, momentary choices and decisions. We step under the rule and reign of Christ. And I step out of the kingdom of God, or at least the reign of Christ, by resisting him. And there's an eschatological sense. So I have a much fuller or much different position or understanding of kingdom of God now than I did then. But to get to that place was a struggle for me. And you know why it was so, so difficult? Because I kept seeing those people I loved and owe such a debt to, my professors, hearing me say that stuff and going, uh, 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 Art, stay faithful to what you were taught. And so to let go of one thing I believed and embrace a different nuance of it almost felt like disloyalty to them. And that position and other positions that I've come to theologically have in fact cost me friendship, at least affected those friendships. That's one of the reasons intellectual generosity is dangerous for, dangerous for some of us. could actually affect long-held relationships. There's a second reason that I'll bring up today. There are more that you could think of. It might cost you a friendship or two. It could cost you some internal peace. Why? Because change, even if it's intellectual change, is always connected with turmoil. Always. Brenda and I are going to be moving into a different house here pretty soon. Do you think there might be some messes going on during that move? Holding a different position. You have calm in your hearts. I've got everything all figured out. Fantastic. I got, my life is this table with a nice pile of paper perfectly stacked. And this pile is this this stack of beliefs and this stack of beliefs. And then somebody opens a window or turns on a fan and everything gets all mixed up because I'm rethinking some things. And there's this sense of a loss of peace and calm. It's like when life is, it's like life is this beautiful pond and the water's clear and you can see all the way to the bottom. And then somebody stirs up all the silt on the bottom and you can't see a thing in the water. One of the reasons intellectual generosity, teachability, is dangerous is because it could cost you something and it could cost you some internal peace. But here's the good news. The peace it will cost you is the pseudo peace that comes from being convinced that you have more figured out than you actually do have figured out. That's the good news. It doesn't cost you peace so much as it costs you calm. It will cost you not the real peace of Christ, but it will cost you the seductive pseudo-peace of arrogance. But it's going to cost you. Intellectual generosity is costly. It could cost, might cost you some friendships. It could cost you some internal peace. But folks, it will cost you your pride. And that might be the most costly feeling part of this, of, of everything. It will cost you your pride. It will give you the blessing of being humbled. Sometimes teachability requires us to admit that we were wrong. And imagine the burden of being a teacher of theology and you realize, oh my gosh, I had that all wrong. And then the added burden when you think, 
Oh, Lord, have mercy. I taught it like that for eight years. And I was wrong. And then the craziness that comes when you think, what if what I'm teaching today is wrong? <laughs> and we live, all of us do. If you're a parent, you know what that feels like, right? Parenting is, I said it a thousand times, parenting is one guilt trip stacked upon another, so just deal with it. <laughs> do the best you can. But it costs you your pride. And here's the real challenge. How do we live with strong convictions? Because we certainly do not have the option to say just anything's true, whatever you want to is true. Scripture is prescriptive, properly understood and interpreted. Scripture prescribes how we live. It shows us what's quote-unquote right and wrong. It's not something you get to bring meaning to and assign meaning to it, and then you get to, it gets to say whatever you want it to say based on your latest longing. It's prescriptive, but it takes intelligence and a, a determined approach to understand it uh, correctly. Sometimes we get it wrong. Teachability will cost you your pride. And only the very greatest among you will ever be able to deal with the fact that I was wrong and I, I still want to live with conviction and teach and train and share with conviction, but there's a humility around my conviction and it's a little bit of an awkward mixing of those two this place of teachability, this place of intellectual generosity. It's costly because it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it's costly. I'm going to ask Linda to come and just as we finish up our time together here, give you a chance to reflect on a couple of questions. And I'll ask the questions. It'll also be up on the board. But this is a time of silent reflection. Just let your heart revolve around these questions. Let the Lord minister to you and maybe bring to mind something that might be relevant. It's really about considering our teachability index. How healthy is it? Here's the first question. Again, silently consider this. Maybe write some notes if the stuff comes to mind for you to look into later. First question is this, what theological convictions or practices might you be clinging to that are not based in biblical logic or reasoned interpretation? What theological convictions or practices might you be clinging to that frankly aren't biblical? They're not based in biblical logic or reasoned theological interpretation. Let the Lord stir that one up for you a little bit in silence. Second one. On the other hand, what might you be resisting simply because to yield would require something other than logic or reason? What might you be resisting simply because to yield would require some measure of faith to believe it? And for some of you, that might be becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Christ. It requires faith to believe that he forgives sin and he actually is the author of abundant life, real life, purposeful life, meaningful life. 
Maybe it's something else. What are you resisting? Simply because it requires faith to believe it. Let God speak to you around that one for a second. And finally this. Do you listen to divergent views on important biblical matters? In other words, do you read people and talk with people who disagree with you on theological issues? And here's why. Because you'll never be able to be convinced by or reassured that you should never be convinced by an argument you aren't willing to at least hear. You'll never be able to be convinced by or reassured that you should never be convinced by an argument you aren't at least willing to hear. Do you listen to, do you read divergent views on important biblical matters? What's your teachability index? Take those things away. Good food for thought for the rest of the day.